I want to turn to Romans chapter 8. And I, I, you know, I know I asked you to stand, but I'm going to let you be seated. Now I want you to stand up again. No, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Pentecostal calisthenics this morning. Amen. Well, I need to give an intro before I read the text. And so let me, let's, let's start there. We're, we're changing chapters. We're moving to a new chapter of the book of Romans. We're in Romans chapter 8. And the 8th chapter of the book of Romans is the culmination of a line of thought that began very early in the book of Romans. Kind of started to take shape in the 6th chapter and is carried forward now. And in the 8th chapter of the book of Romans, in my in my opinion, is the high point of the entire book. It is the climax of the whole thing. Everything culminates and comes together. The arguments that Paul's been making coming up to this point, the discussion of justification now turning to sanctification, all of it culminates in this idea of living in the Spirit of God. What it means to be Spirit-filled. Come on now, this is a Spirit-filled church. Amen. They classify us as spirit field. When you look at the studies and you go through and you look at all the different, uh, when they do studies on denominations and what they believe and stuff, we're classified as spirit field. Amen. That ought to be more than just mean that we have lively music. That ought to mean more than just that we're a little unorthodox in our worship. We don't, we don't take communion every Sunday and we don't have liturgy and we don't have that, that reading together of the same verse of scripture you know, that, that's prepared years in advance. We, we don't have all that form and symbolism and tradition, but spirit-filled is a whole lot more than not having the form and symbolism and tradition and all of the, the stuff that goes along with organized traditional religion. Spirit-filled means the Holy Ghost uh, abides, not in this house, uh, but in this people. Uh, amen. The Holy Ghost lives uh, within us, uh, and when we come together into the house of God uh, as the people of God, this church is uh, is a spirit-filled church. And where the Spirit is, where the Holy Ghost is, where the power of God is in operation, anything is possible. Chains are broken. Lives are changed. Healings happen. Marriages are put back together. Relationships are restored. People find meaning and direction for their lives in a spirit-filled environment. That's why Romans chapter 8 is so important. That's why it is so central to the book of Romans because in, in this chapter we discover that a Christian can indeed live a, a holy life, a righteous life, a, a godly life, that they can overcome sin, that they can live sanctified. Now that's a word we've said several times and, and I know we associate it sometimes uh, uh, with, with a term that we don't, we don't normally use that. that. That's the kind of thing that we hear. But sanctified doesn't just mean high and mighty or some. It means set apart. It means separated. It means it's been declared to belong to God. What is sanctified belongs to God. What is sanctified, you don't use it for anything else. You use it for the service of God. For that reason, everything that had to do with the tabernacle in the Old Testament was sanctified. That means it was set apart. That means it was separated. You didn't use the vessels of the tabernacle when you were getting ready to have your Sunday brunch. Amen? 
You didn't use the vessels of the tabernacle for just a a casual affair. They were sanctified. Our lives are supposed to be sanctified lives. Uh, Amen. We're set apart to the service of God. We are inhabited by the Spirit of God. God lives here. Come on. God lives here. The Spirit of God lives here. Amen. The the abiding presence of God lives here. Amen. This belongs to him. Uh, As much as this house uh, is set apart to the service of God, amen, we don't don't let just anybody come in and use this building. We don't let just any kind of event take place here. There are certain things that are not going to happen in this auditorium because this is the house uh, of God. Amen. It's the same with my life. Uh, Amen. This is a a spirit-filled body. Uh, God abides here. Amen. And this belongs to him. It is set apart. So in the pages of this chapter, we're going to discover what it means to be spirit-filled. What it means to walk after the spirit instead of after The flesh, that phrase will appear twice in this morning's reading. And while some scholars have argued that it should only be there once, and it only appears, some of the older manuscripts, it only appears once, it really is of no consequence to us this morning, whether it's in there once or twice, it's in there. And it's supposed to be in there. Amen. And what it tells me is I'm supposed to live after the Spirit not after the flesh. What we've learned so far in the book of Romans is that we cannot rely on our own resources to become godly. We can't rely on our flesh to make us righteous. When we try to serve God in our flesh, we're fighting a losing battle. Our flesh doesn't have the power to overcome the sin nature that abides within us. We simply cannot walk after the flesh and fulfill God's purpose for our lives. But God has filled us with his spirit. And his spirit empowers us to overcome. In order to fulfill God's wonderful plan for our lives, in order to be everything that he has called us to be, in order to realize the benefits of this wonderful salvation that he has given us, in order to ensure that we don't fall back under the dominion of sin, then we've got to learn not to walk after the flesh, but to walk after the spirit of God that abides within us. The assurance of our salvation, both now and in eternity, rest in the Holy Ghost that lives within us. Amen? you got to be spirit-filled. It's more than just a designation by which they, they identify our church. It is the hope of our salvation. I've been filled with the Holy Ghost. And one of these days, uh, when the trump of God sounds, uh, what's getting me up and out of this world uh, is not my own works. Uh, it's not anything I've accomplished. Uh, it's not any track record. It's what lives uh, within me because the Holy Ghost uh, is the resurrection uh, and the life. Uh, and one of these days, uh, when he calls his church home, uh, He's going to call his spirit, uh, amen, come home, uh, amen. It's that spirit uh, that's going to cause me to rise out of this world. I have to live after the spirit, not after the flesh. We have to allow the Holy Ghost to lead and control our lives. That's why Jesus came. That's why he died for our sins. 
so that we could be filled with his spirit. That's how important the gift of the Holy Ghost is. It is the answer to the dilemma that was presented in chapter 7. And I know it's been a week or two now, and I know we've had the disruption of weather, but we spent all of that end of chapter 7, all those 12 verses there at the end, talking about that terrible dilemma that, that, that humanity finds itself in with the will to do good, with the understanding of the law of God, knowing that I ought to live better, but finding that it is, it's just not possible in my flesh. But the Spirit... By the Spirit, God empowers me. That's what Romans 8 is about. We'll read the first four verses this morning. That's all we're going to try to cover. Amen. And it reads like this. Romans chapter 8 and verse 1 says, There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus hath made me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh, God sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, condemned sin in the flesh, that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. Amen. I'm going to read the first verse and then we'll get into it. It says, There is therefore now no condemnation. To them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. This entire chapter is all about the power of the Holy Ghost, which is Jesus Christ living inside of me. But it is more than just Jesus living in me. It is me living in Christ Jesus. When I was baptized in his name, I was, according to the scripture, baptized into Jesus Christ. I have been united with him in a special sense because I have experienced with him death in my repentance, burial in my baptism, and the power of resurrection and life when he filled me with his spirit. He now lives in me, and in, in order to see that come to the fruition of what it means, I must also live in him. My hope is in him. My faith is in him. My salvation is in him. And my strength, the ability to live right, is in him. It rests fully in him. Paul starts then, Romans chapter 8, with the most immediate benefit of living in Christ Jesus. There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. That word condemnation is from a Greek word that is a judicial term that refers to the judge's sentence on a guilty person. It's not just the pronouncement of the sentence, but it is the actual carrying out of the sentence. There is not any 
condemnation. We, we were condemned, amen? Not just under the, the threat of condemnation. We were under the penalty of sin. We were under the penalty of death. We lived uh, spiritually dead. There was no life in us, amen? Everything that we touched uh, was tainted by sin. Uh, but then Jesus Christ came, uh, amen? And he lived as a man just like me and you. Uh, but he was perfect in that there was no sin in his life. Uh, and he overcame sin. Uh, and now I live uh, not in myself, uh, but I live in Christ Jesus. Uh, and if I live in Christ Jesus, uh, there is no condemnation. That word no is from an emphatic Greek word that means not a single one or no condemnation of any kind because we are in Jesus Christ. Uh, our record is clear in God's sight, uh, and our conscience is clear before him. Amen? It no longer matters what you did before. It no longer matters the sin you committed in your past. In the scope of your walk with God, amen, it no longer matters what you did uh, before, what is under the blood. You're no longer guilty in the eyes of God. His forgiveness is not partial. His forgiveness is complete. That's important. I understand why Paul leads with this. Because some people struggle mightily with this. They cannot find it in themselves uh, to forgive themselves. Uh, amen. Long after God has already forgiven them, long after God has already put their past uh, under the blood, they still can't find it in themselves uh, to forgive themselves uh, for what they have done, uh, for what is in their past. Uh, and they let Satan continue to drag them down uh, with the guilt uh, of their former life uh, to continue to drag them back uh, into what they once were but to tell them they aren't worthy of the grace of God. They don't deserve the goodness of God. They don't deserve the mercy of God and they keep going back to what they once were because they fail to recognize I have been forgiven. He didn't forgive me on the basis of my merit. He didn't forgive me because I'm generally a good guy and I deserved it. I'm a sinner. Absolute and utter failure in the eyes of God. And he forgave me anyway. And if he can forgive me, and if he can forgive Paul, who held the coats of them, who stoned Stephen to death, he can forgive anybody. Amen? His forgiveness is real and God no longer condemns you for what he has forgiven you of he views you as completely innocent there is no condemnation now that doesn't mean that the world's going to view you the same way that doesn't mean that if there's a social price to pay for the sin that you committed, perhaps in an extreme case there's a jail sentence hanging over your head or something like that, that doesn't mean that you're, not, that you're going to be exempted from that in, in the social situation in which we live. But it does mean that you don't have to hang your head. 
that you don't have to walk into the house of God and feel like you're some kind of second-class citizen. There are no second-class citizens in the kingdom of God. Freedom from sin uh, is freedom from the, the guilt of sin. It's freedom from the condemnation of sin. Amen. You can lift your head uh, in the presence of God and know no matter what I've done, no matter what kind of person I was before, I am now in Christ Jesus. And in Christ, I become a new man. Amen. What that doesn't mean, though, and what it cannot mean in the context of the book of Romans is that you can sin with impunity and never experience the consequences. It cannot mean that you can live in the flesh and never experience condemnation for the acts of your flesh. If you're living in sin, You should feel the conviction of God on your life and you should be motivated by the guilt of your sin, by the condemnation that comes along with sin to repent of your sins. Amen. It is the act of repentance, the act of putting yourself under the blood of Jesus Christ, the act of living in Christ instead of following after the flesh. That's what removes the guilt of sin. When you genuinely repent, you are forgiven. And when you are forgiven, there is no condemnation. Amen. Your life is under the blood. In order to experience that state of no condemnation, Paul said we walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit. Because if we walk after the flesh, we're going to be condemned. If we walk after the flesh, we're guilty. But if we live in Christ, if we walk after the Spirit, there is no condemnation. In this one verse, the first verse of Romans chapter 8, we find the power and the virtue of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It both pardons us and it sanctifies us. It both covers our sin. It produces a state of innocence from sin by by putting our faith in Jesus Christ, the The gospel of Jesus Christ does what the law could not do, what the law could never do. As we identify with him in his death and his burial and his resurrection, the guilt and condemnation of sin is removed from our lives. We're no longer guilty. But it doesn't stop there. As we continue to live in Christ Jesus, as we continue to walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit, we're made holy before God. We're made righteous before God. We are separated unto God. Our lives begin to reflect the wonderful salvation that has been given to us through the power of the Holy Ghost that abides within us. We live after the Spirit. We walk after the Spirit. We produce the fruit of the Spirit in our lives, not the works of the flesh. Verse 2 says, For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus, for the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus, hath made me free from the law of sin and death. 
The law of the Spirit. Remember, we talked about all those laws last time, the last part of Romans chapter 7. I don't have the time to go back through all the laws, but we, we spent a whole Sunday morning talking about all the laws. Amen. The law of the Spirit was the final one. The law of the Spirit is the spiritual principle of life in Jesus Christ. And the law of the Spirit has delivered us from the law of sin and death. The, the sin nature dominated us before. It caused us to commit sinful acts uh, that bring death to us, that put us under the curse of sin. And neither the law of God nor the law of our mind. Remember we talked about the written law and, and the power of our will. Neither one of those things could set us free from the law of sin. Sin had us bound. The law of sin ruled. We were under the dominion of the sin nature, but not any longer. We've been washed in the blood of Jesus. We are now filled with the Spirit of God. We've been filled with the Holy Ghost, and through the power of His Spirit, a new law now works within us, the law of the Spirit. And in the law of the Spirit, we have freedom from that vicious cycle of sin that we saw in Romans chapter 7. You don't have to live that way anymore because the law of the Spirit of life in Jesus Christ has made me free. From the law of sin and death. There's a play on words in this verse that highlights the chief difference between walking after the flesh and walking after the spirit. In the context of this verse, the spirit is associated with life and sin is associated with death. We readily recognize that sin and death are inseparable. It's the way it works. Wherever sin rules, it always brings death. The wages of sin, we can all quote it, the wages of sin is death. Uh, but the opposite is true of the Spirit. Wherever the Spirit rules, uh, there is life. Uh, the gift of God uh, is eternal life. Uh, in the same way that sin and death uh, are inseparable, the Spirit and life uh, are also inseparable. And whenever the Holy Ghost enters into a life, uh, it brings with it the abundance of life. Uh, it brings with it uh, that resurrection power of God. It brings with it a new life, a new creature in Christ Jesus. It produces a new life in the heart of a believer that is lived out in the lifestyle of that believer. It shows up in the way I live. Amen. Verse 3. For what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh, God sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, condemns sin in the flesh. The Greek here literally says, the impossible thing of the law. What is the impossible thing of the law? What is the, the thing that the law could not do? What was impossible for the law to do? The law could not set a sinner free from the tyranny of sin and death. We, we, in Romans chapter 7, we said the law was intended to bring life, but it could only do so when it was 
when it was fulfilled completely, when it was followed to the full letter of the law, once a person sinned, there was no recourse in the law to set them free from sin's penalty and sin's power. The law could not restore them to the sphere of life. It can only leave them under the condemnation of death because it's not within the scope of the law's ability to bring life. That's the impossible thing. That's what the law could not do. And the reason the law could not do it is that it was weak through the flesh. The weak link in the law was the weakness of my own flesh. Because the law of sin in our lives was greater than the law of our mind or the law of God. The law of sin was greater than my own willpower. The law of sin overrides my ability to recognize that I should live right. Because the law of sin had dominion in my life, it was greater than my own will. I couldn't obey the law of God. I couldn't obey the commandment of God, and I was doomed to fail. I was doomed to death. The law could not bring life because of the weakness of my flesh. Amen? The Achilles heel of the law was my flesh. The law of God is given to Moses could never deliver me from sin and death because it was weak through the flesh. It depended upon weak human flesh to be perfect in the sight of God. It depended on the frailty of humanity to fulfill the commandment of God, it demanded what the sinful human nature could not produce. But that's not the end of the story. That was never going to be the end of the story. When God instituted the law, he instituted the sacrificial system, not as a way to make up for the shortcomings of the law, but as a way to look forward to the answer to the law. Amen. The priest brings a lamb and lays it on an altar and sacrifices it for sin and rows sin ahead for another year, not just to make up for the weakness of my flesh, but to look forward to the answer that comes to the law. Amen. What the law could not do, God accomplished when he sent his own son, when he manifest himself in flesh, when God made for himself a body and God came uh, into this world uh, as a man, uh, when he manifest himself in the flesh uh, to provide an offering of atonement for sin, God did what the law could never do. God cannot disregard his own righteousness. God cannot break his own law. God could not, in his dealings with men, make a way of mercy that did not uh, give honor to the requirement of the law. The law required death. 
and death had to take place. God had to be true to his law. And once sinners had broken the law's commandment, once human flesh had failed the law, the only way that God could remain righteous uh, and restore humanity to life uh, is if he satisfied law's requirement for punishment. And the price of sin, that terrible, horrible penalty, that condemnation had to be satisfied. The wages of sin had to be poured out. That's why God became a man. That's why God robed himself in flesh. That's why he came. He came to die in my place. He came to pay the price for my sin. He came to suffer the wrath of sin for me. Easter's right around the corner, and this is as close to an Easter message as you're ever going to get. Amen. The cross, with all of its horror, was the ultimate price for sin, and that price had to be paid. God, in his infinite mercy, amen, looked down and found a way to satisfy the requirement of the law, but saved my life. The law required my life. The law required my death. Uh, but God looked down uh, and found a way to become the lamb uh, that stands in my place uh, to substitute himself uh, for me. Uh, amen. And God, in his infinite nurse mercy, became both the judge who judged sin and poured out his wrath upon sin. And he became the one who bore the judgment for my sin. The one upon whom the wrath of God was poured out. God. Great, the scripture says, the mystery of godliness. But God was manifest in the flesh. God became a man. God, the, the, the ancient of days, the one who was and is and forever will be, he who holds all power and authority in the universe. He robed himself in the frailty, in the weakness of flesh and in humility and humbleness he came. He opened not his mouth against his accusers. He reviled not against those who reviled against him. He submitted himself and humbly he went to the cross so he could pay the price for my sin. There is no more powerful story in all the history of humanity than the story of a Savior, God, becoming a man. So he could die in my place. For what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh. God sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh for sin. Condemned sin in the flesh. Paul makes an important distinction about the flesh of Jesus Christ. And I want to stop here for just a minute and address it. Jesus did not come... In sinful flesh, he came in the likeness of sinful flesh. 
Likeness implies something similar but different. And I want to deal with that for just a minute. Jesus Christ was fully human in every respect, but he did not have a sin nature. He did not sin. He inherited his humanity from his mother. And he inherited his deity. God himself overwhelming and over, overshadowing Mary. He was at the same time fully God and fully man. And what that means is that he had a body that was fully human in every sense of what it means to be a human. It had everything that a human body is supposed to have. It, it had every, it, he could experience every portion of what it means to be a man. But he did not have the corruption that comes from sin. He had a complete yet innocent Human nature. Scripture calls him the second man, Adam. Adam was made a man without sin. And Adam failed, fell into sin. Jesus Christ was the second man, Adam. Adam Clark put it this way. He said, Paul did not say in the flesh of sin, which would have implied that Jesus took part in sin. And he did not say, in the likeness of flesh, which would have implied that he was something other than fully human, that his flesh was not like our flesh. But what he said was, in the likeness of sinful flesh, which indicates that Jesus was fully human. His flesh was just like our flesh. He was robed in flesh just like you and just like me. This flesh who is weak, this flesh which is frail, this flesh whose main characteristic is sin. And that was the difference. He was made in the likeness of sinful flesh. The exception was... He didn't have the sin. My salvation depends on his righteousness, on his holiness, on his perfection. He was in a body with real flesh, as real as yours and as real as mine, flesh that could sin. There was no difference between his flesh and my flesh. It was flesh that had the ability to sin. His flesh struggled to control him. Jesus Christ was a man of prayer. Anybody, everybody's asked the question, why did Jesus pray? Come on, he's God manifest in the flesh. Why does he have to pray? Well, honey, that's your answer. He's God manifest in flesh. And flesh tries to control. And flesh tries to take him away from his purpose and his will. And his flesh tries to rule. And the only way, listen, if the only way that God 
manifest in flesh can control his flesh is by praying and fasting. Pray tell what makes you believe you can live for God if you don't pray and you don't fast. Come on, he's the only perfect human. Never has been any like him, never will be again. He's all alone in that category. He's absolutely perfect without sin, but he prays daily. He goes before the throne of God. Why does God go before the throne of God? Because his flesh has to remain in submission to the spirit of God, that deity that abides there. And if he needs it, this old boy needs it. If he has to have it, then I have to have it. Amen. He was in a body, but it was a body that struggled to control him. But in the end, he overcame. And because of his righteous life, that flesh that he was robed in, was flesh without sin. That's the difference. The likeness of sinful flesh. He came for sin, but he was without sin. That's the wonder of it all. The Bible tells me he was tempted in all points. It's not temptation if you can't sin. He was tempted in all points. Like as we are, but he was without sin. He faced every kind of temptation that you're ever going to face. He struggled against every kind of fleshly corruption that you're ever going to struggle against, but he never succumbed to it. He never relinquished authority to sin in his life. That's why he was able to die in my place. That matters, friend. There's a whole lot of... Uh, uh, crackpot historians in the world today trying to prove that, that Jesus had a relationship with Mary Magdalene or that he did this or that he did that or that he was something less than a perfect man. Amen. You can't preserve Christianity. Amen. If Jesus Christ is anything less uh, than a perfect man, you can't preserve your salvation uh, if Jesus Christ uh, is anything less uh, than a perfect man because the only way that he can die in my place is if he has no guilt of his own. The only way his blood can be innocent blood, can be precious blood, that can cover the multitude of my sins, is if he doesn't have any sin of his own. So God condemned sin in the flesh. The last phrase. He condemned sin in the flesh. We've got to understand what that means. God didn't pardon sin. And a lot of people like to approach it that way. He pardoned my sins. God didn't pardon your sins, honey. He paid the price for your sin. 
God didn't just, oh, well, we'll forget about that. He paid the horrible agony of the price uh, for your sins. Uh, Amen. He died uh, for your sins. God didn't pardon sin in the flesh. Uh, He condemned sin uh, in the flesh. Uh, He fulfilled uh, the condemnation uh, of sin. There's a reason why I can stand and say there is no condemnation to them who are in Christ Jesus uh, because Jesus Christ uh, has already borne the brunt uh, of the condemnation for my sin. God's judicial sentence against sin was passed and executed at the cross. At Calvary, upon the flesh of Jesus Christ, the wrath of sin was poured out. The weight of God's judgment against sin was completely and fully poured out at Calvary. You have to get this. I mean, what a divine irony. The flesh, the very stronghold of sin, was the very thing that God used to condemn sin. The very thing that the law could not do because of the weakness of the flesh. God himself did in the flesh. God robed himself in the same flesh that has entrapped us, uh, in that flesh uh, that has kept us under the thumb and the control of sin. And in that flesh, uh, he lived a perfect, sinless life. And then he died for my sins. And he endured the full and complete wrath of God for sin. He paid our price. And he alone was qualified to pay that price. Because he was in the flesh, but without sin. He passed judgment on sin and bore that judgment himself in the flesh. That, my friends is the miracle of the incarnation. God became like me so that I could become like God. God became a man. He robed himself in flesh so that I could become godly, Christ-like, Christian. Because of the tremendous price that he paid, I no longer had to walk after the flesh. I no longer had to pursue the things of the flesh. I can now walk after the Spirit. I can now walk after the abiding presence of God in my life. Listen, if I choose to walk after the flesh after all that, I do dishonor and disservice to what God has done to redeem me. It has to fly in the face of God to say that because of that sacrifice, I can continue to live in sin. If I now live in Christ, then I must live in the power, the overcoming power of his spirit. Because he conquered the power of flesh through his life. And he bought me redemption through his death. 
the final verse, Romans chapter 8 and verse 4, that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us. This is the reason why. The righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. Here Paul ties it all together. The purpose of redemption is that the righteousness of the law, did you, did you get that? The righteousness of the law. The righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us. The purpose of justification is sanctification. The purpose of my salvation is that I would live a holy life. The purpose of my redemption is that I would live a life that reflects the glory of God, that the righteousness of the law, the law wasn't all bad. There was some goodness in the law. There was righteousness in the law. And what the law couldn't accomplish because of the weakness of my flesh, the Spirit now empowers me that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in my life. The purpose of your salvation is to produce a life of godliness in you. Jesus Christ came to do what the law could not do. He came to give us power over sin and over the sin nature. The law of sin was dominant over every other law in my life until the law of the Spirit came in. And the law of the Spirit is dominant over the law of sin. Amen. And he came to give me the power to live a life uh, that reflects his goodness uh, and his glory. He came to enable me to meet the righteous requirements of the law. God does not save us so that we can continue in sin and be excused for our sins. God didn't save us so we could live like the devil and say, well, there's no condemnation because I'm in Christ Jesus. Honey, you can't be in Christ Jesus and live like the devil. The righteousness of the law is fulfilled in them that are in Christ Jesus. The righteousness of the law is demonstrated in the lives of those who walk after the spirit and not after the flesh. God saves us so we can fulfill his original plan for humanity. He saves us so that we can be what he created us to be. He, he saves us so that we can be a holy people, so we can be a righteous people, so we can be a godly people, so that we can fellowship with him. He can't abide sin. He doesn't fellowship sin. If he made Adam and put him in the garden for fellowship, the whole purpose of redemption is restoring that fellowship. He can't fellowship with me if I continue in sin. He can't fellowship with me if I continue in the life that he saved me from. How can we fulfill law? How can we fulfill the law's righteous requirements? We can only do that by walking after the Spirit 
and not after the flesh. We've got to daily depend on the power of the Holy Ghost. We've got to daily crucify our flesh. We've got to daily look to the Spirit for direction and for power. Listen, we've already proven that we cannot live for God in our flesh. We already settled that. That's why we had to come to an altar and repent of our sins. Because we can't live for God in our flesh. We proved that before we were saved. It is an extreme fallacy then to believe that you can be filled with the Holy Ghost, yet somehow live a life that is pleasing to God without ever allowing the Holy Ghost to lead and direct your life. If you couldn't live for him in your flesh before he saved you, you're not going to live for him in your flesh after he saved you. We can't serve God in our flesh. What does that mean, Pastor? You can't serve God without a prayer life. You can't serve God without spending some time in the Word of God. You can't serve God without some times of personal dedication in your life. You can't do it. Your flesh doesn't have the ability. You must allow the Spirit of God to work in your life. Now, you can fake it. You can pretend. And you can put on and nobody will ever know the difference except you and God until finally the facade grows thin and everybody sees the difference. You know, eventually the guy behind the curtain shows up. I don't know, the Wizard of Oz Reference rings true with you, but originally, I mean, eventually at some point, the curtain gets pulled back, and the little frail guy running the levers and then turning the knobs gets exposed. You can't serve God in your flesh. You can put on the show, but you can't serve Him in your humanity. You need the Spirit of God. Abiding in your life and directing your footsteps, empowering you to live for God. The Spirit enables us to live a life of righteousness. The law told us how to live holy, but the law was powerless to produce holiness in our lives. But the Spirit, it not only tells us how to live holy, it produces holiness in our lives. We're empowered by the Holy Ghost within us. What God once commanded us to do, he has now enabled us to do. That's the difference. The Holy Ghost empowers us, but only if we walk after the Spirit and not after the flesh. Now, God does not give us inherent power over sin so that we can overcome sin on our own. We need the Spirit. We need the power of the Holy Ghost. God himself becomes the power dwelling within us that enables us to overcome sin. That's why so many believers struggle to live for God. But I'm Holy Ghost filled. I shouldn't have that problem. Amen. If you're Holy Ghost filled, you ought to let the Holy Ghost lead you. You have that problem because you're not staying in constant contact. You're not praying. You're not fasting. You're not reading the Word. You're not... Listen, the Holy Ghost convicted you and you ignored it. That's just the truth, my friend. Amen. Sanctification, righteousness, holiness, godliness, whatever you want to call it, is based 
on an intimate relationship with the Spirit of God, you have to walk after the Spirit. Holiness in the flesh is empty, frail, and broken. Dead is whited sepulchers full of dead men's bones. It has to be born of the Spirit. And those who live by the Spirit, as Paul says, produce the fruits of the Spirit. I, I'm, I know I'm going long, and I'm just about to finish. There's a lot of talk right now about executive orders. Not going to get into the politics of executive orders, but an executive order cannot cause a tree to produce grapes. You can't command a tree to make grapes. The only thing to make grapes is a vine. It has to have that grapevine, that life that is in the vine flowing through it. And the, the, the grapes don't come just from the vine. You can go pluck the vine, cut it off, and put it in your garage and wait for grapes, and you'll wait a long, long time. It comes from the life. The Spirit is that life. And Christ said, if you abide in me, and I in you, you'll produce the fruit. The grape's going to be there. Holiness is going to be there. Righteousness is going to be there. Godliness is going to be there. If we walk after the Spirit, we'll produce the works of the Spirit. That's the reason why He saved us. That's the reason why we're in the church, is so we can fulfill the righteousness of the law. The notion that God has saved us then so that we can remain in our sins is not consistent at all with the overall message of the book of Romans or the overall message of the Word of God. I'm closing with this. The readers of this original letter, the readers that first read the book of Romans for the very first time, were men and women of the New Testament church, men and women who were familiar with the Scriptures. As a matter of fact, the only Bible they had was the Old Testament. And they were familiar with the promises of the Old Testament. They knew that God promised in his word that he would give his people, listen, a new heart and a new spirit so that they could succeed where they had failed so miserably. Where did they fail? In fulfilling his law. I'll read one passage, Ezekiel chapter 11, beginning with verse 19. Ezekiel 11 and 19 says, And I will give them one heart, and I will put a new spirit within you. And I will take the stony heart out of their flesh and will give them a heart of flesh. So I'm going to give them a new heart, a new spirit. Why? Verse 20 says that they may walk in my statutes and keep mine ordinances and do them, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God. It was understood uh, in that first century church uh, that, that what the prophet was prophesying uh, was what was fulfilled uh, in the New Testament church uh, when God gave them a new heart uh, and a new spirit. Uh, he gave it to them so that they could obey, so that they could fulfill the statutes and the ordinances uh, of the law of God. God filled them with the Holy Ghost so they could live a holy life. They saw the gospel of Jesus Christ not as an excuse to continue in sin, but as the fulfillment of verses of Scripture like that. God promised through the prophet Jeremiah in another passage, Jeremiah 31 and 33, that he was not going to abolish the law. 
That wasn't what he came to do. Jeremiah 31 and 33 says, But this shall be the covenant I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, saith the Lord, I'll put my law in their inward parts uh, and write it in their hearts, uh, and I will be their God, uh, and they shall be my people. That's exactly how they perceived uh, the Holy Ghost. Uh, It was that new spirit uh, that gave them a new heart uh, that enabled them to walk in the statutes of God. God said, I'll write my law on your heart. That's the standard for a New Testament church. Would you stand with me? When I was a teenager, which has been just a couple of years ago, there was a song, I think it was a Stephen Curtis Chapman song. As a matter of fact, I may have been a young married man. It may have been even less, may have just been yesteryear. Song said, It all comes down to your walk. It all comes down to the walk. If you walk after the flesh, you will live in the bondage of the flesh. It doesn't matter that you've been filled with the Holy Ghost. It don't matter that you come to church on Sunday. It doesn't matter that you hold a position in the church or that, you, that you're active in the different ministries of the church. If you live after the flesh, you're going to live in the bondage of the flesh. You're going to live in the bondage of sin. There, there's no middle ground in this. But if you walk after the Spirit, you'll live in the freedom of the Spirit of God. Live a life that exemplifies the very righteousness of the law of God. And the promise is he will be your God and you will be his people. There's nothing more comforting to me in hard times, difficult circumstances, than to remind myself that I am his and he is mine. But you know, as much faith as I put in that promise... It's predicated on the fact that I walk after the Spirit, not after the flesh, that I allow His law to govern my life. So many times we're saying, God, take away this trial, and it's a trial that we created by our own actions because we walked after the flesh, because we followed the pursuits of the flesh. It's a, it's a circumstance that we brought on ourselves. This isn't even, this isn't even, had anything to do with the will and purpose of God for my life. I, I caused this. This morning, I want to challenge you for a few moments on a Sunday morning Brother Ryan comes to the music. Find a place of prayer. And this needs to be our heart. This needs to be the very center of our prayer this morning. Lord, I want to learn what it means. To walk after your spirit. I want to learn what it means to abide in you, Lord. I want to listen. I struggle sometimes. We all struggle sometimes. We all have those moments where our flesh gets the better of us, where our anger rises up, and and where where whatever other circles, maybe bitterness or something in your heart, and you struggle against your flesh. There's only one answer to that. Amen. It's not in your willpower. We found out last time that doesn't work. Amen. It's in the Spirit of God. Amen. The only way to control this flesh uh, is to lay this fleshly man on an altar and crucify him before the presence of God.